0: Welcome to Greenville Oaks. We are so glad that you're here, whether it's your first time or you've been here for a long time. This is a a great time to be joining us because we're starting a seven-week series of lessons on the Bible, on what it is and where it came from, and how do we read it in a way that it really can be applied to our lives uh, and and help us to join God's mission. The Bible has been a source of instruction and encouragement for generations, But it's also been a a book that has challenged people who have been on their journey toward God, and there are parts of Scripture that if you read it along the way, you're sure to have questions about, about pictures of God that are handed on, about the people of God and how they respond to the call that he has. It can be, at at times, an embarrassment to try to describe some of this in light of the reality of our world and in light of some of those things. Some people can see this as a very primitive or ancient text that's behind the times. Sometimes you hear the Bible talked about in that way. And I think, I don't know if this has been the case for you, maybe it's been this way personally for you or others that you've known. I've had people in my life that have been on their pursuit of Jesus, and the stumbling block on their way to Jesus has been Scripture. How do you help this text that was written thousands of years, How, how do we derive our lives from that, and how do we live in tune with it, and how do we make sense of it? And so over the next seven weeks, what I want to do is I want to take on some difficult questions. And, and this morning, I'm excited in a lot of ways. I have emotions of excitement because I've been prepping this series for about 12 months now. And uh, it's dangerous for any preacher uh, who's male to, uh, to be using uh, pregnancy metaphors at all in what I'm about to say. But there's a sense in which it feels like I'm birthing something that's been, you know, growing in me through a season. Again, I should probably use, never use that metaphor again, right, Holly? But I'm, I'm excited because something's coming to you know, fruition that I've been working on for a while. I'm also, though, a bit nervous this morning because I think sometimes it's easier for us as Christians to rethink Jesus than it is the scriptures that God gave to us. And part of what I'm going to say over these next seven weeks may challenge some of us. It may also give some answers to some questions that many of us have had. I think it's worth the risk. It's time for me to stop putting this series off because actually I think it's my nervousness that leads me to believe it's even more important to talk about that those taboo subjects that we tend to kind of move to the side, that in our culture and in this day, we need to address these things head on. So I want to begin with prayer this morning as we talk about the Word of God, as we talk about Scripture. And over these next few weeks, let's start this with prayer this morning. God, we, we invite you to help us to understand in better ways this Word that you passed on to us centuries ago. Our, our belief is that it's inspired, that it uh, is an authority in our lives. Perhaps the primary authority in our church's life together is we seek to be a people who are set on your mission and on your way. So God, my my trust is what Jesus promised, and that is that your Spirit continues to guide us into all truth. And I pray that the Spirit of God that's involved in each of our lives who are believers, the Holy Spirit would guide us toward that truth through this conversation. And uh, I pray this morning you pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ should be formed in our hearts and our imaginations might be better formed to be your people in the world. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. The Bible has been important to me since day one in my life, if not before. I don't know if your family was like this. I know we come from different families, but we had this massive Bible that got passed down through the generations. This is actually my my great-great-grandparents' Bible, their table Bible, and it got passed down to me. And it's really neat. I have this on my desk as a reminder that this story of faith has been passed on from generation to generation. On top of this, you know, family table Bible, I also have these smaller Bibles. But uh, this one actually belonged to my great-grandfather. His name was Robert S. Bell. He died before I was born a few years, but I've heard some people in this church that knew of him. He was a, an elder at the Preston Road Church of Christ in Dallas, and he taught and was involved with the school of preaching there. And, and in this Bible, it's really interesting to flip through it because he has his notes. He has... Underlinings and highlighting. And it reminds me that I come from this family that's really believed in this book and it's formed our family in significant ways. My grandfather, also, I've got his Bible, H. Lynn Packer, and and I knew him. And and it's just fascinating. Sometimes I'll be preaching in passages and I'll I'll go back to these scriptures just to see what is it they underline, what is it they emphasize, what notes are in the margins that might bring uh, uh, some sense to what I'm trying to do. But it's not just Bibles from the past in my family my parents, you know, told me these stories from a young age. I remember my my children's Bible. In fact, the way I picture Jesus sometimes is still in the way he's pictured in the children's Bible, right? Because I remember my parents reading these stories and, and my imagination being driven by those pictures and story of Goliath and David, the story of all these, you know, Jonah and the whale. I mean, I I imagine these stories as they were illustrated in my children's Bible, but eventually I got to a point where I need to move past that, and so I got this teen study Bible. I don't know if any of you had this version. I think they put paint on the outside of it because they thought it would get destroyed anyway, right? This went into youth group with me, and I've got page after page of like calendar notes that I tore out of uh, you know readings that I had in, in high school. No telling what kind of notes are here that were passed in church at that time, uh, But this was my teen study Bible, and I've got a lot of notes and outlines that are in here uh, that I'll look back through from time to time. And then I I got to the point where it was time to get one of those leather-bound copies, right? This is an NIV version that I got Christmas of 2001, and it's barely hanging on the the front cover. But I took this to a school with me in undergrad and graduate studies, and so I've got Greek words in the margins. I've got things underlined. I've got notes from professors that taught things. This has been my, my study Bible that I still look back to often, but I got to the point, I realized I, I, so many notes, I need to have a preaching Bible. And so I've got this Bible and I don't write any notes in this. And I realize in a few years, I'm going to need to go to a larger print version because it's getting harder to read. But uh, I, this is my preaching Bible. I spend time with that. And then I've got another Bible of sorts. I've got this Bible, right? Uh, my laptop or my iPad, I've got, I've got concordance and dictionaries and all that, that I can do background work. And so a lot of the study that I do on a weekly basis happens on a computer or on my iPad. And when I think about that, I think, man, I, I, it's really important that I have a Bible like this to pass on to my kids because if it's just a Bible on a pad, my kids won't have something passed down to them in the same way. And so there's something about this that I still honor that I think is important because I want my kids to see the importance of having something that I, I flip through. And so, I, anyway, all these Bibles have formed me. And, and they're, they're Bibles that I took with me into classrooms when I was uh, of a different perspective and was debating Baptists in my local private school. Yes, I had to apologize for some of those moments and some of the things I said. This, these Bibles have been with me as I've changed and sh- my opinion's been shaped about Scripture over the years. The Bible has been an important book for many of us, if not all of us in the room. Some of us are just learning about it and others of us have been at it for a while. But wherever we are on that journey, this is a book that's shaped generations for thousands of years now. And there are key moments in human history where People rediscover the Bible, whether that's in their personal lives or that's something that happens in in the midst of a nation or a group of people, and it changes everything. And this morning, I want to tell you one of those stories to start out, one of those moments where the Bible was rediscovered early on in Scripture. So I've got this bookshelf back here for this series because I want to remind us, I'll talk about this later, that the Bible's not just a book, it's also a library of books, right? There's 66 books, the blue and black ones are the New Testament or the Old Testament, uh, 39 of those, and then there's 27 They're the green and black ones that are in the New Testament with the cross here at the center. And so I want to take this story actually from the history books right here, Uh, 2 Kings. If you have your Bible, feel free to open there with me if you would. 2 Kings 22 was the story of the rediscovery of Scripture with a guy named King Josiah. Uh, And this was a key moment in Israel's history. And so through this series, I'm going to refer back. I'm actually going to be reading from these books as a reminder that this comes at a point in Israel's history, right? You've got the Torah, the first five books that are the the, the book of the law, but this is the history portion that I'm drawing from in this. And so this is Israel's story. This is before they go into exile, uh, but this is King Josiah. This is 2 Kings 22, verses 1 to 13. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidah, daughter of Adaiah. She was from Bozkath. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent the secretary, Shaphan, son of Azalea, the son of Meshulam, to the temple of the Lord. He said, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, have him get ready the money that has been brought into the temple of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have collected from the people. Have them entrusted to the men appointed to supervise the work on the temple. And have these men pay the workers who repair the temple of the Lord, the carpenters, builders, and the masons. Also, have them purchase timber and dress stone to repair the temple. But they need not account for the money entrusted to them because they are honest in their dealings. Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. And he gave it to Shaphan who read it. And then Shaphan the secretary went to the king and reported to him, Your officials... And paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and entrusted it to the workers and supervisors at the temple. Then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah, the priest, to Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Akbor son of Micaiah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Isaiah uh, the king's attendant. Go and inquire the Lord for me, for the people, and for all Judah, about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us, because those who've gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. Now, this rediscovery is a rediscovery of the Bible, but not the Bible that we have, right? Not this... this all 66 books. This was written before a lot of them were written. None of these green books are actually have been composed at this point. But they rediscover part of the book of the law, it says. Um, we're not quite sure what that means, but this king's really interesting. Josiah, he was eight years old, and so two-thirds of his life he's been king at this point. When they rediscover, when they're cleaning out the temple, this this book of the law, and in Second Chronicles 34, it tells this story also, and it says that this, this book of the law came from Moses, and so some scholars think that that's referring to the first five books, the whole Torah. Others think maybe just the book of Deuteronomy, but they've discovered Scripture, and they go back to it, and, and Josiah reads it and realize they've made some mistakes. Now, it's really odd. Think about this. Can you imagine coming to church one day and realizing, like, we've misplaced the Bible. Um, we can't come up with it, and so we're not quite sure what to do going forward. At some point, they'd lost this book of the law. And Josiah's discovery of it leads them to think, we've got to read this again and see if we're in compliance, see if we're following God's commands. It's clear they're not. They're not following God's commands at all. And there's some things that happen. He doesn't just clean the temple. He starts to clean house in all of Judah. Listen to what happens. In in this annual spring cleaning, it turns into something larger. He reads the book of the law, and then he reads it among the people of God that are there. And... uh, the, the people of God decide we're going to dedicate ourselves back to this covenant that God has given to us. And then the cleaning really begins. The idols to Baal and Asherah are destroyed. Uh, the priests that are dedicated to other gods are thrown out. The, they tear down the living quarters for the male shrine prostitutes and the women who weave for these false gods. And Josiah doesn't just do this in Jerusalem. He goes on a tour around Judah, the southern part of Israel. And he starts wiping out these places of worship that weren't in in accord with the the God of Israel. So why did all this occur? This all occurred because they rediscovered this book. They rediscovered Scripture. And when they went back to it, they realized that they weren't doing as God had wanted them to do. And this isn't the only time this happens. It's happened several times throughout Scripture. In the 15th century, there was an incredible uh, invention that changed the world again forever, right? The printing press comes into existence. And with that, the first book that's ever printed is is the Bible. And, and so when they, when they print this Bible, uh, it, it's a pretty big deal because before that, they would have to go to church and you know, there, were, there were priests and others that could read that had scrolls and so forth and manuscripts. And, and and so they would have to trust themselves to this upper class of religious leaders that would tell them what the book says. But now with the printing press, now it's possible for everyone in their own home to own one, two, how, how many do you have on your shelf, right? They own these Bibles. It was an amazing discovery. And now these lay people, not the clergy, now these lay people are reading it and realizing we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. Like There's some some things that we're doing that isn't in accord. So 500 years ago last year uh, was actually when uh, Martin Luther nails the 95 theses on the castle uh, church there at, at Wittenberg. And it's this amazing moment. The Reformation happens because they come in contact with Scripture. And he's trying to reform, not start a new church. He's trying to reform that church at this time. It's a really big moment and and it's a really good thing, right? I mean, it's great that everybody can read scripture now. It's great that everyone can have this personal copy, but with that comes some hardship because now that everybody can read it, everyone can also disagree (laughs) with one another about how they read it. And so what started as this reformation to reform the church and to call it back into, kind of like Josiah, call it back into accord with what God had intended. turns into a splintering of the church into denominations all over the place, right? And that continues to this day. But in in the early 1800s, there was another group of people that in a way rediscovered the Bible. The Restoration Movement is how we refer to it. Churches of Christ have emerged from that movement. And and really what we decided was in the midst of all this division, in the midst of all of these different perspectives in the Reformation, uh, why don't we go back to Scripture and go back and make it as simple as we can to follow what these words are. And if we do that, then maybe God will give His blessing and we can be united again and not be a stain on the body of Christ through our division. And so we try. Unfortunately, that movement has splittered again into division. These are reimaginations. These are times where we've gone back and we've tried to restore. we tried to go back to the Bible. And that was the impulse of our ancestors. And my suggestion through this series is we're in another era where we need a back to the Bible movement. We're in another set of times where it's easy to look to culture to guide us rather than going back to the source of God's revelation in the beginning, that was Scripture, that's this book that has stood the test of time that's been passed through the ages. I think it's time that we go back to the Bible. But it's important to think about how we do that. And that's what this series is about. Because while there are positive examples of where uh, Scripture's been recovered and and rediscovered and God's done done really good things like in Josiah's time, there have been other moments in history where people have gone back to the Bible and they've used it for their ends and it hasn't turned out all that good. It was June 7th, 1964. they had all gathered at the local Methodist church like always. They were having another one of their get-togethers. And as usual, they started with a prayer. Of course they prayed. They were God's chosen people, after all, saved by God to bless the world. But on this particular night, someone wrote down their opening prayer. Sam Bowers, their preacher and leader, uh, opened with this prayer. Here's what he said. "O God, our heavenly guide, as finite creatures of time and as dependent creature of thine, we acknowledge thee as our sovereign Lord, permit freedom and the joys thereof to forever reign throughout our land. May the sweet cup of brotherly fraternity ever be ours to enjoy and build within us that kindred spirit which will keep us unified and strong. Engender within us that wisdom, kindred to honorable decisions in the godly work, for the power of thy infinite spirit and the energizing virtue therein ever keep before us our pledges of righteousness. Bless us now in this assembly that we may honor thee in all things. We pray in the name of Christ, our blessed Savior, amen. Then, the members of the Ku Klux Klan said amen, got up, and started planning how to carry out God's goal for white supremacy. So you can go back to the Bible, and things can go terribly wrong. It matters how we go back to the Bible. And if a church goes back to the Bible, it must take care of how they do that, or someone might get the wrong idea. Sometimes there are unintended consequences. In July of 1933, during Hitler's first summer in power, a young German pastor named Joachim Hassenfelder preached a sermon in the towering Kaiser Wilhelm Memorial Church, Berlin's most important church at the time. And he used his Bible, specifically Romans 13, to remind worshipers of the importance to obedience with those in authority. The church was elaborately decorated with Nazi banners and stormtrooper flags, its pews packed the Nazi party faithful See, you can go back to the Bible and have it go terribly wrong because it matters how you go back to the Bible. Some rediscover the Bible and end up discovering a way to reform, to put away the false idols and altars and to go back to Scripture and restore a country. And others go back looking to endorse their own power and control, choosing an agenda other than the kingdom of God. Over the years, my understanding of the Bible has changed, it's morphed, it's shaped, I think it's matured in some ways, as many of you would probably relate as well in your own lives. At different points in my life, I've seen the Bible as a magic book, as a rule book, as a self-help book. I've seen it in different ways, and I'll I'll return to how we see the Bible and what we can legitimately expect from the Bible next week. But today, what I want to do in intro is just to open up one big idea about scripture that's helped the way I look at it and read it and, and hopefully try to bring it to you as I preach it. And that idea is this. The Bible is not a book. I know it looks like a book. It, it's bound like a book. It has pages like a book. It has page numbers like most books that you'd find. But the Bible's not a book. It's actually a collection of books, or we could call it a, a library of books. And a library, this library has 66 books to be exact, at least in the Protestant uh, version of it, right? The Catholic and some Orthodox Bibles have a few more uh, books in their Bibles. So there are 66 books on these shelves. I mentioned the blue ones are the 39 books of the Old Testament, kind of broken up into different sections of history and wisdom and, 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 and the writings and prophets. Uh, the New Testament's 27 books, the Gospels, Acts, the Letters of Paul, and the other letters and epistles, Revelation as well. And if you think about this library, it's really pretty interesting. It's a library of 66 ancient books, the latest of which was written uh, just under 2,000 years ago. These books were written over a span of 1,500 years or so from 1500 B.C. to about the end of the first century by approximately 40 different authors or editors writing in three different languages across a span of different kinds of literature in the midst of this. Uh, I actually found a, a video this week that I thought explained this pretty well that I want to show to you. It's put on by the Bible Project. If you're not familiar with the Bible Project, it's a really great resource I encourage you to check out. It's a free resource online that has all kinds of videos and study tools. But watch this video as it kind of reveals to us more about this library idea.
1: The Bible is a collection of many books telling one unified story from beginning to end but all those books were written in different literary styles.
2: Yeah, think of it like walking into a bookstore where every aisle has a different kind of literature. There's history or poetry or nonfiction. And when you choose an aisle and pick up a book, you're going to have very different expectations, different things that you're looking for.
1: Right, they're all literature, but they communicate in really different ways.
2: Yes, and so the same thing is true for the Bible. If you don't pay attention to what style it's written in, you will miss out on the brilliance of each book. So what are the main types of literature in the Bible? Well, first and foremost is narrative. It makes up a whopping 43% of the Bible. After that is poetry, which is 33% of the Bible. And then there's what you could call prose discourse, which makes up the remaining 24%. Nearly half the Bible is narrative. Yes, and this is no accident. Stories are the most universal form of human communication. Our brains are actually hardwired to take in information through stories. And stories are really enjoyable. Why is that? Well, stories train us to make sense of the seemingly random events that happen in life, by taking those events and then putting them in a sequence. And then together you can start to see the meaning and purpose of it all. And what links this all together? Well, good stories always have a character who wants something. And then through these characters, an author can explore life's big questions, like who are we or what's really important in life. And a good story always involves some kind of conflict. Some challenge to overcome, just like in our own lives. And that forces us to think about our own challenges. Why there's so much pain or disappointment in the world. And then what can we do about it? And stories usually end with some kind of resolution, giving us hope for our own stories.
1: Since these are Bible stories, are the characters showing me how I
2: should live? Yeah, that's not quite the point. Most Bible characters are deeply flawed. You should not be like them. But we are supposed to see ourselves in them, which helps us then see our lives and failures from a new perspective. And without even realizing it, these stories will start to mess with you and change how you see the world and other people and yourself. Now, there are different types of narrative in the Bible. Yeah, there's historical narrative, but also narrative parables, short biographical narratives like the four gospels. We'll look at all these in later videos.
1: Okay, next up is poetry, which honestly I don't read
2: a lot of. Yeah, you're like most people, but one out of every three chapters in the Bible is poetry. Yeah, why so much poetry? (laughs) Well, poems mainly speak through dense, creative language, linking together images to help us envision the world differently. Poems use lots of metaphor to evoke your emotions and your imagination. Lots
1: of fancy language, but wouldn't it be easier just to tell me what I need to know? Well, think about it.
2: In life, we tend to form mental ruts, and we think in these familiar, well-worn paths that are very hard to get out of through logic or reasoning. And what good poetry does is force you off the familiar path Into new territory. Sneaky. And there's different types of poetry in the Bible. There's lots of types of songs or psalms. There's the reflective poetry of the wisdom books. And then the passionate resistance poetry of the prophets.
1: Okay, the last big literary type is called prose discourse. And it makes up a quarter of the Bible.
2: Yeah, these are speeches, letters, or essays. And the focus here is building a sequence of ideas or thoughts into one linear argument that requires a logical response. Like, hey, have you thought about this thing? You should also consider how it connects to this other thing. And if you do, then you will see that this is the result. And in light of that conclusion, therefore, you should probably stop doing that one thing so that this other thing will be the outcome. So you're persuading me with reason. Yeah, discourse forces you to think logically and consistently and then do something about it. Biblical discourse is found in law collections, in wisdom literature, and the letters written by the apostles. Okay, so each book of the Bible has one
1: literary style. No,
2: actually most books have a primary literary style, like narrative for example. But then embedded in the narrative, you'll come across poems or parables or a collection of laws. Every biblical book is a unique combination of literary styles.
1: And to read that book well, I need to be
2: familiar with each literary type and how it works. Yeah, so you know what to pay attention to and what questions you should ask. But before we look at each type, there's one more unifying feature of biblical literature that's really important and really cool. And that's
0: what we'll explore next. Feel free to go online and you can check out more of those videos. I like the way he described that, to realize that genre matters. And we bring expectations if a book starts with, you know, uh, once upon a time versus an editorial story that we might read in the newspaper. At least we used to see it that way, you're right. Uh... So when we, when we read the Bible as a single book, it can be easy and tempting to flatten all these different books and, and to read them all kind of the same way. But what the video is pointing out in this library concept is, is that these are different stories written from different perspectives to different audiences trying to challenge and impact us in different ways. I found a, the, this video helpful. and I, I like the way one writer actually puts it when he says it this way. The primary challenge for modern people reading these books from an ancient library isn't deciding which parts... Of the Bible to take literally, but learning how to read all the different books of the Bible literately, reading and interpreting the books of the Bible according to their literary type and style. See, the books of the Bible were uh, divided into chapters in the 1200s AD, and verses weren't added until the 1500s. And these innovations, they made it easier for us to find and navigate these different books of the Bible, especially as they were bound into a single volume to find out where exactly that verse was. We're looking for. But it also made it easier to proof text verses by ignoring their literary style, by ignoring the context to support your argument without thinking about the book or chapter or verse and what's behind that. I've heard preachers before brag that their position on a certain issue was right because their list of verses supported what they were saying was longer than the opponent's list of verses. I haven't done the math, but my guess is we could probably line up more verses from the Bible that appear to support slavery than specific verses that would condemn it. Yet what we believe is that the message of the gospel revealed in the Bible undermines the practice and institution of slavery. So how do we arrive at such a decision when that's not necessarily a verse that we can find? Well, we'll talk about that a few weeks from now. But when we read this Bible as a library of ancient books written by a bunch of different people living at different times and places, And not as a single book, it encourages us to use the phrase the Bible says less often. Here's what I mean by that, or or at least use it with greater care. The Bible says a lot of things depending on what parts you pick out and which ones you emphasize and those you ignore. So one person might say the Bible says that God's people should wipe the enemies of God off the face of the earth. While another person can say, well, the Bible says God says we should love our enemies and be willing much more to die for them rather than to kill them. And actually the Bible doesn't say either one of those things because libraries don't say things. They contain books that say things. I mean, if you were to share a fact with a friend and you found that book, that, that fact at the, at the library, would you tell that your person, well, I found the fact at the library. Or would you say, no, there was this particular book that I found interesting with a great argument. And so you would source that book behind it or, or, uh, it, it's true. I mean, think about this when it comes to this library for a second, right? I mean, this question comes down to Deuteronomy, which has one thing to say about enemies, and, and Matthew that says something a, a little bit different, right? In, in Deuteronomy, you can actually find verses that will show you that you ought to wipe out your enemies and tells you exactly how to go about doing that, right? But if you were to pick up Matthew and you were to open the Sermon on the Mount, well, Jesus has a little something different to say about that. He says you're to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So which is it? What does the Bible teach? How do we resolve the difference with the tension between what these two different books are saying? Well, that's another topic we're going to address in the next few weeks. And I think this is a really big deal because every day I jump on social media, and I'm sure you do as well, and I see well-meaning Christians jumping into the fray claiming this is what the Bible says about this particular issue. The reality is a bunch of different Christians say a bunch of different things about what the Bible says about a bunch of different topics. When we overuse the phrase the Bible says, we not only run the risk of oversimplifying complex questions of ethics and morality, we're also reinforcing the idea that the Bible is a single rule book or guide rather than a library of ancient books written to address different questions and gives different answers in the midst of the context it's writing to. Now, I want to clarify this morning, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the Bible is a jumbled mess full of controversy viewpoints or that we can't use the Bible to discern God's will on any given issue or question. That's not the case at all. But it's also not as simple as saying the Bible says and then quoting a handful of verses as if that's the whole gist of what the library speaks to. Now, we'll talk more about how we can apply the ancient wisdom found in the Bible to contemporary issues in a few weeks. But here's what I find amazing about Scripture. In the midst of all these books written by all these different authors in different languages across 1,500 years, what's amazing to me is the consistent, unified narrative that we find about a God who is moving along history in light of a people that he loves that he's trying to call according to his purpose. It's amazing if you think about how that works out and what that leads me to believe, as Scripture claims, is that the Bible isn't just a random collection of ancient books written about God. It's an ancient library of books inspired by God. Paul actually talks about this in one of his books. In Second Timothy chapter 3, uh, he's writing to Timothy at the end of his life. We'll dig into this more next week. But listen to what Paul writes in Second Timothy 3, verse 16 and following. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped For every good word. Next week, we're going to pick up right there. We're going to ask that question. What does it mean that we say the Bible is inspired? What does it mean that it's God-breathed? Church, my contention is that it's a time in our history where we need to go back to the Bible. It's a time for us to rediscover its story. The threatening thing about going to the Bible is you just never know what you're going to find when you go back to it. You just never know what God's going to do to disrupt your life, to call you on a mission you never imagined you'd be called on. To open this book is a dangerous activity because the Spirit of God still speaks through these pages. And that means it might just surprise us. In fact, it might just change everything. Let's pray as we close our time this morning. Our God, our Father, we, uh, we thank you for this gift of Scripture of this library of books that's been passed on through the generations that the church has testified to as words that you've spoken through before. And we trust that you're not done breathing life into these words. But we have a testimony, a, 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 a witness among us, God, today, of people who have gone to this book and whose lives have been made better by trusting its words and putting them into practice. And that's our trust, God, is that as we engage this over the next six weeks, and we, as we invite this conversation with others in our community, God, that, that you would use uh, Scripture once again to remind us of the work you're still doing that is a living and breathing word that you inspire. You've inspired in the past through the writers, and you still speak to us through your spirit through these words. So God, I thank you for the gift that we have that previous generations didn't have, but I, I pray also that you would allow us to go back to it in a proper way because we know there have been moments in history where your people have responded to your word and have torn down false altars and idolatries. And there have been other times that we have uh, used this book to, in, in order to control and, and, and to do things that aren't in line with who your son Jesus is. My prayer is that we would learn together how to go back in a proper way so that we might hear a fresh word and hear exactly how you call us to be as your church in 2018. God, that's our prayer this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.